First Thessalonians, we're going to spend the next couple times together there. Um, our network session to come is going to be just really a biblical theology of disciple making. And um, the way you handle it as pastors is just really theology, philosophy, and practice, right? And um, got to have a good theological basis for everything we do. Then you got to have a philosophy that's going to give way to some hands and feet for your people, for each of us, on how to own this disciple-making lifestyle. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you may have read his works on discipleship, but he said that um, the church without disciple-making is always the church without Christ. It's a pretty powerful statement. But nonetheless, we've uh, found that to be true. We were talking over breakfast together with some men, and uh, we were talking about this, the syndrome of theological obesity, that we can have a profound Christology, we can know a lot about him, but do we really know him until we're fleshing the way he lived out in our own lives? You sit and read the Gospels, it's just something to just meditate upon and think about uh, together. Um, growing deeper in Christ within, we've sung about this morning, and, and then somehow uh, taking his burden with that um, understanding of growing deeper in him within to our communities. Certainly we have to be prayed up, Right? Uh, we, we certainly be, should be praying all along as we discussed last night. Uh, but nonetheless, God's placed you right where he wants you to be. And uh, you don't have to take this like a drink from a fire hose. It may, may, may feel like that, but just simply attach yourself to someone in your church under your pastor's authority and start to study together. And before you start studying of the word together, pray. For someone that needs Jesus in your, in your orbit. And then watch God provide the opportunities. One by one. Uh, maybe that can be a prayer for your whole church for a whole year. That God would give at least every one of us someone we can build a redemptive relationship. And then when you gather back together, maybe once a week in your churches, you can talk about who that person is, and then maybe your pastor could stop and just pray right there at that moment for that person, and you can testify of the blessings of studying the Word with someone, and then testify of the blessings of God expanding your evangelistic coasts, so to speak. The more God's people hear that in the context of study and worship, the more they're going to be empowered to um, live it themselves. Uh, we call it, what's the good news about the good news testimonies at Grace? And um, years ago, uh, we couldn't have had those testimonies. Usually testimony time was your basic good testimony time. God answering prayer in this way, God showing you something in the Word here personally. Um, but we, we couldn't have good news testimonies because the pastors, as I said, really, including myself, couldn't give them. Um, but little bit by little bit, um, God will develop this in your own heart and 
your pastor's hearts and the church family's lives and so forth. But it's got to start with the pastors, I understand that. Um, some of my friends live in very small rural communities. Most of my pastor friends do. And um, so how in the world do we start doing this? It's like, well, you got 168 hours, just pray God will give you wisdom. Two of them found tremendous gospel progress just by joining their local uh, fire department as a volunteer fireman. A friend of mine, Josh Putnam in Michigan, has won a handful of his buddies at the fire department to Christ. Another friend of mine in New Hampshire and then another one in New York, the same thing. Very small rural towns. Where do you find people besides the local diner and maybe a local park? Find them in the fire department. God's put you where you're at and uh, doesn't matter whether you're urban, urban or rural. Uh, he's put you there on purpose and you, be, you begin to pray and God will certainly give you that opportunity. There's one prayer that God's answered 100% of the time in my life. I can't remember one time where he didn't answer it. Lord, would you give me a gospel opportunity today with somebody? Sometimes I don't pray that because if I'm getting on a flight and I really would like to read a book or take a nap, <laughs> right? Uh, every time I pray that, the Lord answers it within 24 hours. I don't know if he'll do the same for you, but it's amazing to me. We have not because we ask not, but we pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his field. You're praying for yourself, whether you're a pastor or not, and your own field is your own town. You, you pray, God will answer. Our way of getting into the community as a family was just through our kids' abilities. You gotta remember, I, I grew up in a very, um, a very uh, um, fortressed Christianity. We discussed that a little bit last night. Um, when we're discovering what this disciple-making life is as a family, my wife and I, we'd pray. It's like, I guess we're just gonna have to pioneer this thing at Grace and figure it out. We had offered our resignation, we thought, back when the church was just really always doing this, never seemed to have any type of sustainable growth. We couldn't see Jesus building his church. We thought maybe it was our fault, so we say, hey, we can resign and get someone in here that can grow this place. Um, when the church turns down your resignation and says, we want you to stay, then you still got to figure it out, <laughs> right? So um, we just prayed and the Lord laid on our hearts to you know, grow each other uh, in Christ-likeness. I didn't have a discipler. Um, my dad would have been that guy, but the Lord took my dad. Um, we really didn't have, because he was a pastor, we really didn't have a Deuteronomy 6 kind of relationship in our life because he was taught to be very busy and he was gone a lot. Um, my my older sister and brother both walked away from the Lord. My dad had no relationship with them. He offered his resignation because he didn't felt, feel that he was owning the first Timothy three qualifications in his life. And the church turned down his resignation. <laughs> and um, he started to try to have one with me. And this is the way my dad was. He was um, he's an old uh, farmer kid from Middlefield, Ohio. 
His dad used to be the head usher under Harry Ironside at Old Moody Church when he was 19 years old. And um, his uncle uh, was the head of coal portering. I don't know if you know what that was or not. Some of you older fellows might know that was really the head of evangelistic outreach. So my great uncle Dana was the head of uh, outreach under Harry Ironside at the same time. My dad didn't know my great uncle Dana well. Um, my dad not born yet, his dad was head of ushering when his father died. It was just standard back then. If you were from rural, you know, Northeast Ohio and you lived on a farming community and you were the only son alive, his dad died in a farming accident. You go back to Middlefield, Ohio, you leave Moody, you go there and you take over the farm. And his mom was a cold, hard atheist woman. And um, the bitterness of losing his dad, having been brought out of Chicago in ministry back to the farm. My grandpa never walked with God again. He died at 84 years old. Was he saved? I don't know. God knows. But that was the kind of environment my dad grew up in. My dad went to play basketball at Kent State University and run track. And uh, when he trusted Christ as a savior at Kent State University, finished his ed degree there and came home and told his dad that he felt like he was going to go to Moody to study for the ministry, uh, his dad kicked him out of the house. So he went from head usher under Ironside to kicking his own son that wanted to, that's the kind of life my dad, my dad grew up in. And so my dad was, uh, he was a, he's a wonderful man uh, as, he, as he aged after having lost my older brother and sister, praise God, they both came back to fellowship in time. Um, he, he told me, he said, I'm going to force myself, after he turned in his resignation and they rejected it, he said, I'm going to force myself to be with you. How do you like to hear that as an 11-year-old? <laughs> he didn't know what else to do. He said, Tim, this is just all I've been trained to do, ministry, ministry, ministry. And he goes, I, know, I love you guys. You guys know I love you. I was never told once that I was loved in my house that I grew up. He goes, at least I get that out. He goes, I'm going to force. I said, what are you going to do? He goes, I'm going to become your basketball coach. All right. Like, okay. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, I was third born. So I got, was in the peanut gallery all the time watching the struggles that he had with my older brother and sister. And I just, I didn't want to be part of the, I didn't want to be part of that mess. So I just kind of stood back here and kind of was a spectator of that mess. And, uh, but God allowed us to develop a relationship through him being my basketball coach all the way through my senior year of high school. And he's a good basketball coach. Um, but that depth of relationship really didn't come until later when we're in ministry together. And I worked underneath him for, for 19 years as his youth pastor. Um, and then we began to figure out this relational you know, this disciple-making thing together. He passed away before we can really get into the depth and breadth of what we're talking about this week. Um, but I really never had, and I'm not whining, I'm not complaining. God's been very good to me. I was, I was reared very well. But I never had a discipler in my life from that standpoint, right? If I'm gonna do this as a pastor, I've gotta own the fullness of it. I've got to be a senior pastor, yet I have to have a discipler. And I, while I disciple somebody, while we're all trying to reach lost people. Uh, so I started to put these pieces together with my wife and myself, and 
I asked uh, two of the men in my church, uh, one not a pastor, uh, one who was, uh, to disciple me and to help me learn this lifestyle. You say, yes, senior pastor, you had someone in your church leading you. Yes, I did. Our people aren't going to do what their pastors aren't going to do. And so those two men continue to this day to disciple me on a regular basis, and it's very, very helpful. As I disciple people, and then as we go deeper in the Word together, we try to reach out. And so in my family, we just decided to reach out through my kid's skill set. We really had no connection. We had a lot of acquaintances in town, but we had no relationships. We have thousands of acquaintances, don't we, and no relationships. So where are we going to find a relationship? My kids, God made them pretty athletic, so we decided when they were little to get into the athletic community, and that's where we started to, to build our, our relationships. Some people in our church are very, um, uh, they love the farming world. Not far from us is uh, some love agriculture. We have, the, we have the largest per capita migrant community. Um, uh, Lake County, Ohio is called the nursery capital of the world, apparently. And uh, so a lot of our people get into livestock, farming, and so forth. A lot of our, a lot of our parents get into the community ver via their kids' desire to be part of 4-H. Do they have 4-H in Iowa? Uh, so a lot of our... <laughs> I figured you had something like it. I just know if it was called that, you know. Uh, you guys probably got that in spades over us. Um, a lot of our people, you know, kids are in STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, mathematics. And they get the, into the community via their kids' skill sets there. Um, some of our kids are involved in the arts. Cleveland Institute of Music's not far from us. So Cleveland Orchestra, Cleveland Orchestra Chorus, they have youth versions of both. And our people will get into the, uh, into the arts and, and begin to build redemptive relationships via their kids' skill sets. For our people that don't have children, they're empty nesters. They're finding their way to the Senior Citizen Center in, in our town. Um, they're finding their way to, I didn't even know this was a thing, but you can get on the internet and find crochet clubs. Our ladies are getting involved in community by crocheting with other people that need Jesus. Our one lady in our church that plays organ, she found an organ guild, right? Um, one guy plays, what's the card game? Rook? Is it Rook? Uh, he found a Rook club, and he goes and plays Rook every week. One guy in our church named Doug, um, uh, he's a widower. He said, Pastor, I like to walk. And he goes, I actually found a walking club. Uh, Doug is walking a minimum of five miles a day with his walking club. And every Saturday, they do 26 miles every Saturday. And Doug's 71 years old. And um, Gordon in our church, he, uh, he's a triathlete. And um, he loves extreme sports and and. He, uh, he bikes and runs and swims with a small group of people. We have an 87-year-old lady in our church who goes to our local health club, and she swims. They have a little swimming group, and they go out and have breakfast after their 6 a.m. swims in the morning. Uh, you can find a way. You pray, 
remember, God knew where he put you, where you are, and it's okay. I have a friend of mine in Indiana, lives in rural Indiana, farming community, pastors there, a very small church, and, and um, he loves to be a mechanic. He likes to help farmers. He goes, he goes farm to farm helping men fix their tractors, uh, fix the, uh, what would you call them on the back, my dad would know, on the back of tractors that till the soil. Um, the combines, he, what are they called? The plow, what are the combines? They're in the front, right? They pick up. So I know sports, I don't know farm. So John goes farm to farm and he's built relationships with those men in his community and their families. And he has them over for, he, he loves to smoke meat, so he has them over for big barbecues, and, and um, there's a will, there's a way. My daughter um, played soccer with a girl named Sammy. Um, they started playing when they were six years old, and my wife and I have been praying, and we were able to build a relationship on week one, start to build with uh, Jared and Missy, Sammy's parents, and... Um, it's been, well, Emma's 20 now, so you do the math. It's been that long. Uh, Jaron and Missy aren't born again yet. Um, but we continue to get together with them. Uh, Jared has two brothers that are Catholic priests, and Missy has a brother that's a Catholic priest. They're from Indiana, so both very devoutly Catholic people. They have no relationship with their local Catholic church. They have a deep relationship with us, as the girls got older, uh, Emma went into, continued on in soccer and track, and Sammy went into volleyball. And um, they keep a relationship as, as best they can. Um, but their, their other, they, have, they have six children. Their other son, Noah, and my son, Noah, played football together all the way through high school. Jared and I continued to communicate together. Uh, my son played college basketball and uh, began his career at Ohio State and Jared's a Purdue grad. So one night, um, Purdue was coming to Ohio State to play, to play a game and I said, hey Jared, you wanna go to the Ohio State Purdue game with me? And he goes, oh man, you take me to Ohio State Purdue game? I said, absolutely. Two and a half hours down, two and a half hours back, we have a great time. And um, uh, Purdue ended up winning that game a last second tip in, uh, nonetheless. Um, when, I, when I picked him up at the house that night, I said, Jared, we're gonna be sitting in the parent section. I said, so, so no black and gold. You know, it, it, it just, it just, it's not a written rule, but it's a pretty understood rule. If you're gonna sit in the Ohio State parent section, you can't wear your Purdue gear. He goes, you gotta be kidding me. He goes, I don't know if I wanna go anymore. I was like, well, you know, you could wear black, like one of Ohio State colors is black, so you know you can, you can do that. He goes, all right, I'll wear black. So I picked him up, and he came out the front door, and he had a, he had a big old Ohio State sweatshirt on. <laughs> and uh, he got in the car, and uh, he said, I, I was laughing. He goes, I, I know why you're laughing. He goes, I wanna let you know how I got this. He goes, I took all my wife's Kohl's cash, and he said, <laughs> 
He said, I went to Kohl's and he said, I bought this thing last night just for you. And as soon as that game's over, this sweatshirt's yours. <laughs> so we drive down, we have a really nice time. On the way back, we get to Lane Avenue and 315, right outside the Schottenstein Center. And he goes, Tim, he goes, you're a really good friend. And he goes, I haven't told anyone this in my life. He goes, just thanks for being my friend. He goes, but I, can, I, can I tell you something? And he said, I just don't want, you to, don't want to lose you as a friend. And uh, I said, yeah, you can, I think you can tell me anything. I said, we got two and a half hours back, you know. But, and he goes, well, he goes, would you still be my friend if I told you I was a conspiracy theorist? I was like, well, of course, I am too. So no, just kidding. <laughs> so I said, yeah, lay it on me. Yeah, what, what, what do you think? What's going on? I said, you Illuminati guy, you know, what, what are you? And he goes, yeah, I'm that plus a lot more. He goes, but I just really think, he said, I think there's gonna be a guy that's gonna show up in human history someday. Somehow he's gonna be able to trick the whole world to following him. He goes, and I just stopped and looked at him. And he goes, see, I told you, you're gonna not owe me as your friend anymore. I said, no, no, please keep going. You know, this is gonna be good. And he goes, I think he's gonna be able to build this huge economy. And he said, I think he's gonna be able to deceive everybody to worshiping him. And I looked at him, I'm thinking, this guy maybe read his Bible once or twice as a Catholic. And uh, he goes, this is getting weird, isn't it? I said, no, get, keep coming, it's really interesting. So anyways, he, he, he basically describes what we know to be the Antichrist. And uh, so we're, he takes quite a long time. We're over halfway home by the time he's done explaining this conspiracy that he thinks is gonna come. And he goes, okay, I'm done, what do you think? And I was like, well, it's fascinating. And I said, you actually pretty much described a guy that's got a name uh, and it's in the Bible. And he goes, you gotta be kidding me. It's like, no. So I took him through those texts as I'm driving and from my head. And um, that ended up really allowing me to take him from Genesis to Revelation and everything Jesus just while we're driving. And um, it wasn't difficult at all. We got into his driveway and I said, uh, you know, Jared, we've talked about Jesus a lot. He goes, I know, Tim. And someday I said, Jared, you're gonna have to do something with him. I said, the longest distance, in, the longest 15 inches in the world is from here to here, okay? I said, you've gotta do something with Jesus. And he took off the sweatshirt. <laughs> And he folded it up and he put it here. He goes, I know, Tim. I know. He said, have a good night. And he got out of the car. Now, you have to remember, you, you wouldn't have to remember, you'd have to know that a few years back, his daughter cramped up on the soccer field when she and Emma were playing when they were nine years old. I mean, playing three years together. She cramped up and she fell over on the soccer field. And um, the short story of that is she ended up being ambulanced to... Uh, university hospitals, Rainbows down in Cleveland is a children's hospital. And uh, so Rhonda and I rushed down there. What had happened was she had a, a twisted bowel and it had perfed 
and she was um, told she wasn't going to make it, nine years old. And um, anyways, that wasn't that day. We went down to the hospital, came back. Two days later, he called in tears and all broken up. He said, you got to come, you got to come. He said, I'm not calling my priest. He goes, I'm calling you. He said, you got to come down and pray. Uh, Sam was in a coma. Uh, Jared and Missy were just beside themselves. And uh, I grabbed Sam's hand and, and I just prayed with her and, and I told her all about Jesus. And um, I told Missy, you know, Jared's sitting there. I said, Missy, Jared and I have had this talk too, haven't we, Jared? And he goes, yeah. Right? I was like, right now, he's our only hope. And they didn't trust Christ. Two years ago, June, Jared called me and he said, you're not going to believe this. He goes, my company was making me get a vaccine unless I got a vaccination exemption. And he goes, my local doctor here wouldn't give me one. So I drove to my home doctor in Indiana, guy, the kid that I grew up with, and asked him to do a physical and to give me a vaccination exemption. And he said he would. So he went down there, did it, got the blood work, got home, and, uh, and his friend called him and, and said, Jared, he goes, um, he goes, you're in trouble. He goes, you have, you have stage four prostate cancer. And um, he's crying on the phone. He goes, can you believe this? He goes, all I did was I just always wanted God to keep me alive until I saw my little daughter, their sixth child, walk the aisle and get married someday. And they're giving me two years to live. And um, I wept with them on the phone. I drove over to their house and wept with him and the whole family and uh, just prayed with them, shared Christ with them again. You know, no one in that family's gotten saved yet. We've been through all these things together over 16 years, uh, 14 years, and, and no one's gotten saved yet. My wife, uh, two summers ago, um, wanted to get a local ice cream shop so she bought an ice cream shop. And uh, Jared and his family once a week, it's a little walk-up shop that started in the 50s, and they go there once a week. It's called Biggie's Custard. And uh, when I'm up there in the evenings uh, from time to time to help if I need to, I see Jared and his family. I just saw him last week. He texted me the next day. He said, I got more test results coming in. I'm going to the guys should be already gone, right? Uh, or close to gone. Uh, he's, he's the spitting image of health. He fought this thing. Um, at, right after he was given that diagnosis, he, um, he said, I'm just going to beat this thing. And one of the ways I'm going to beat it is I'm going get to get into some intense exercise. And I said, can I join you? So we both joined the local fitness club together. And I started exercising with him every day. And um, anyways, we saw each other. And he, looked, he, he looks great. We keep, we keep in touch. But then he got his you know, four-month checkup results. And I could show you the text that he and I have between one another. And he's, he's um, pretty much you know, cancer-free. And he said, see what God did? 
He's answering your prayers. Keep praying. And I'm just like, Okay, Lord. You know, have I become too much of a friend to this guy? He's missing my friend Jesus. What's going on? What's going on? We're going to keep, we're going, to keep going. All I'm trying to tell you from the pastors in the fire departments to women who swim, guys who walk and bike, fish, hunting clubs, whatever, there are people there in every one of our communities that God would have us reach. I can't give you the time. God saves and we can obey. If we don't have a disciple-making environment in our churches, as Bonhoeffer said, do we really have a Christ? And that's what we said last night. We had to own as a church. Um, Do we really have a gospel if that gospel is not advancing? Anyways, just uh, encourage your hearts as we head into 1 Thessalonians here at this time and the next time we're together. Uh, You've got some notes in your book, I believe, and um, uh, we'll walk through uh, uh, this together here this morning. The Thessalonian church was a very young church. She was a very persecuted church. Uh, Most historians say when Paul wrote this letter, uh, to this church that she was about three years old in the Lord, Max. Underline in your own reading of the book, this will just be a little expositional overview for all of us. Every time you see the word tribulation or conflict or affliction, when you read through it, a lot of church historians say that this church was the most persecuted church of any church in the first century. Okay? Um, Macedonian region, we're assuming that when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that those in the Macedonian church who gave out of their poverty, gave out of their need to help in the gathering of the offering that Titus was taking to Rome, that this church would have been part of that group. This was an impoverished, poor, young, afflicted church. And a lot of people, because of those cultural aspects, those historic truths, That's why Paul wrote uh, five times in the book, once at each of all five chapters about the imminent return to the Lord Jesus Christ. This this church needed some hope. They needed some hope. And you can underline on your own time at the end of each chapter. Now we know there's no chapters until 1611 in our Bibles, but five times in this very short letter, there's a mention of Jesus' imminent return. So this church in their youth was taught to look up more than they looked around at their circumstance. Listen for that trumpet. Remember 1 Thessalonians 4, right? Listen for that shout. But there was something uh, amazing going on in this church when you look at disciple-making the New Testament, which church really modeled it? Jesus lived it, not every book of the Bible was really um, about spiritual reproduction. Certainly we saw last night, it's there, right? But which, which letter in the New Testament, which church would really give us a picture of uh, what this, this disciple-making is? And I think the Lord gives us 
these people uh, to show us how it's done to the person. What's fascinating about this letter, the Apostle Paul never directly addresses the pastors of this church. Okay. He's, he's writing the letter to the church. We see that here in verse 1 and 2. Right? He's writing it to the church, the right place. All of the people in the church. By the time we get to chapter 2, chapter 2 is typically a chapter that's preached expositionally at pastor's conferences of what it means to be a good pastor, how to love your people. And yet the whole chapter is not given in direct address to pastors. It's a fine text to be preached at pastor's conferences, to be sure. But that's not its central theme. Paul's giving them a reminder of his entrance to them. We'll get to in just a little bit so that they know how to continue to shepherd one another in their own context. But anyways, chapter one, what can we learn, each of us, by just highlighting here in, in uh, somewhat of a 50,000-foot expositional fashion of the whole book in the next, this session and the next, uh, what it means to be a disciple-making church? Well, obviously, we have to establish the right start, and this is the foundation of our expectant faith and it must begin at the right place, verse 1. And that's the church, isn't it? To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. I'm not going to camp here. I am camping here. I'm not going to camp out on that passage. But can I just tell you that the, the, the Great Commission, the disciple-making reality was to be owned by every church and is still to be owned by every church. And as much as I appreciate and, and tremendously value camping ministry in my own life and Christian education in my own life, can I tell you that it's really been the parachurch that's really owned this disciple-making better than the church has? Okay? Good for them. In God's mercy, God has used them tremendously. But it's never too late for churches to take ownership back of that responsibility. It's fascinating to me how a lot of camps and a lot of Christian colleges and even Christian schools have been plateauing and declining in attendance Right? And some even going out of existence, just like churches are. And it's, it's fascinating to me that it really uh, should be a healthy church, a spiritually reproductive church, sending bodies to these camps and schools. Right? And they should be receiving these students as people who are young people who are already familiar with the culture of disciple-making. Are you with me? So the kind of camper, the kind of student they get should already be a healthy, spiritually reproductive individual because they learned it in their homes and their church. They learned it from their discipler in their church. And they were already put to the task of discipling somebody as a youth in their church underneath the authority of their parents and their discipler. And they were already actively reaching out into the community. Wouldn't it be wonderful for schools and camps to receive that healthy of a student and a camper. 
It's never too late to do the right thing. It's okay to re-own this, right? You can't steer a parked car. You've got to do something. The church has to do something. We've been praying at Grace and Mentor that God would use us for even not just a national but a global reset in tens of thousands of churches around the world to own what we're going to see here that the Thessalonian believers owned to the person. I think, I really believe that God the Spirit would love to blow his influence into these sails if we would just draw the circle around ourselves and seek to do the right thing the right way to the person in each church. And I think a reset is imminent. It is imminent. Just in the last year, we've been called by a group of churches, 400 churches in Germany. Last week, 250 churches in Australia. 150 churches in Spain. We don't even know these people. And just for the minuscule, little, tiny things we've been trying to do in understanding this culture and implementing this disciple-making culture, God's bringing Macedonian calls from all over the world and all over the country. Help us learn this. I literally got a Macedonian phone call from a guy in Macedonia two weeks ago. And we had a two and a half hour chat. He's planted three churches in his city in Macedonia, in the Macedonian, biblical Macedonian region. And he goes, there's 9,500 Bible-believing conservative Christians in this country of 85 million people And he goes, we are networking the best we can, but we're struggling. We don't understand this disciple-making culture. Can you come here and help us? There's 400 men here this weekend. So we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches, and that's just the tip of the iceberg of people who are calling that we get to help. And then there's 400 men here. How many men did Jesus use to turn the world upside down in the early parts of the book of Acts? Twelve. One and a half rows. Can God still do that? I I would hope we're praying that way. God can use you. And, and how, did, how did Luke, how did Dr. Luke, the educated one, describe these ordinary men as what? Simple and uneducated. It's got to happen at the right place, gentlemen. And I hope by the time we're done and we'll stoke that flame and we'll get on our knees and beg God. God will bring our churches to the, to the reset they need because it's never too late to do the right thing. They're speaking the right message, verses 2 through 5. They had received the gospel well. You can cross-reference here in the margin of your Bible, Acts 17, right? This is the story of Paul's first entrance to Thessalonica in this place, and that's where the intense persecution began, Right? Um, There were many prominent women who were born again in this first 
effort in Thessalonica, and God used those ladies in very unique ways for the spread of the gospel in that town. A church was established. They had experienced a life change because they had heard the gospel, and Paul thanks them and points out three specific things here in verse 3 that had changed as a result of owning the gospel for themselves, enjoying the gifts of faith and repentance and conversion, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of, of God our Father. But I find it fascinating that when someone truly um, experiences conversion, that born-again reality, I find it fascinating here the way the grammar flows in this text what happens in verse 6 first. There's that life change. Uh, we understand they're probably being baptized in this time. We're certainly going to see that they were active, not just growing inside the church together, but in their outreach together. But what was the first steps that they take here in verse 6? It says, you also became what? Imitators or followers, that's the Greek word mimitos, where we get English word mimic, right? It's fascinating to me, and I think it's, it's divinely preserved for you and for me individually, that as soon as we're born again, the first inclination we have is probably to tell somebody else about Jesus, but then to attach ourselves to someone who can help us know him better. Are you with me? How many of you, the moment you were born again, the first thing you want to do is go tell someone about Jesus or tell someone you got saved. Just raise your hand. I just want everyone to look around. They're well over a majority. I remember the moment I was born again, my parents were, my grandparents were visiting for Christmas and I ran to tell my grandpa, I ran to the kitchen to tell my grandma, I ran to the stove where my mom was. I can remember it like yesterday. Hugged her, said, Mom, I just got saved. All right. It was Christmas time. It was cold, snowy. Didn't even put on my shoes. I ran out the front door. My best buddy next door was Greg Henry. How many of you remember the old three-wheel big wheels, plastic things? We were coolest. We had a big wheel gang. <laughs> we big wheeled around our neighborhood like we were that. Sunglasses, everything. Anyways, I ran over to Greg because he and I were the leaders of the big wheel gang. He's pounding on the door, right? He opens the door. What are you doing? It's like... I just got saved. I just got saved. You got what? I just got saved. It didn't matter to me whether he understood or not at that particular point. We tell people, right? When someone's truly born again, if you get a chance to lead that friend to Christ in town, or maybe even someone in your family, maybe even someone in your own home, trust me, the first inclination that they're going to have is to follow someone who's following Christ. And you get to be that person to lead them. That's a humbling thing, isn't it, in this context? But we all find out that we can only take someone as far as we are spiritually, so we had better get on our game, so to speak, and continue to learn Christ from somebody else underneath the authority of our pastor. But I find that interesting here. And then in pretty short order, they're not only following a spiritual example, what do we find out here in verse seven? There's a hina clause here in the Greek language. It says, so that... It's a purpose clause. That's what a hina clause is. So that you became a what? 
an example. That's the Greek word tupas that we studied last night, to leave your mark. Remember, this is a young church. She's no more than three years old in the Lord. Some historians have her as young as a year old in the Lord. These are still baby Christians in our terminology, right? They're following, they've attached themselves to the point now where they're able to start modeling, following, modeling, inside their own local church. Leaving their mark on somebody else's life, in their local church, under their pastor's authority, pursuing Christ's likeness. And their influence is, is profound here. They were not only modeling and leaving their influence on people inside the church of Thessalonica. Verse seven says, you became tupas to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And then he continues, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth so that, the language of the rest of eight and nine is just really fascinating to me, so that we have no need to say anything for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. Now he's talking Acts 17. And how you turn to God and from idols to serve a living and true God. And then the first mention of the imminent return of the Lord there in verse 10. Paul's an evangelist. He loves to plant churches. He's going to the region beyond these people just a few short months, maybe a couple years after he's met them in Acts 17. He's coming back and he's trying to plant more churches and he can't plant churches. Why? They're already planted. I really do believe verses 8 and 9 is the language of church planting, my friends. New beachheads for the gospel are being established throughout Macedonia and Achaia. From them sounded out the word of the Lord. And how comprehensive was their tupas? The apostle Paul himself, the glamorous one of the New Testament, is interfacing with these people, introducing himself, beginning to give the gospel, and these people are saying what? We heard it. We know Jesus. Okay, well then let me teach you something deeper about him. Mm -mm. Got it. We're good here. And by the way, we even know who your name, what your, who your, what your name is. Well, how do you know? We know all about you, Paul. Those really sweet people back in, in Thessalonica told us. You don't need to be here, Paul. You need to go pioneer the gospel someplace else. We got this. Now, folks, we're outside the book of Acts. We know there's a lot of wonderful, divine, supernatural things out of the ordinary things happening in the book of Acts. We're post-Acts now. So I would just submit to us as we continue and wrap this up in the next hour together that what we're going to see, what we've already seen here, and what we will see is actually normative for the New Testament local church 
if our hearts would be willing to get out <laughs> to pray about it and to enjoy this kind of gospel progress. Okay? God can do it. What's impossible for us is possible with Him. Okay? So, begins at the right place, speaking the right message, maintaining the right example so that that yields to the right influence. And of course, this kind of people are always going to maintain a living hope. Verse 10. We'll look at chapter 2 and we get started next time. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity we have to just look into the perfect law of liberty, as James says in chapter 1 and verse 25. Lord, help us to not just be faithful hearers, but prepare to be faithful doers so that we might know what it means to be blessed from heaven in our deed. Thank you, Jesus, for just a good morning together. In your name we pray. Amen.